most original and creative talent in our business, would you welcome Mr. Orson Welles. Ladies and gentlemen, Orson Welles again, come to call for another visit. Good evening. This is Orson Welles. Belly, the two-fisted, quick-triggered marksman who shoots from the hip and never misses. Oh, there we go. Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. I'm here with uh, John Henderson this week, and, and he's appearing uh, with on our Orson Welles chat, which uh, he doesn't often get a chance to do, so I think that's exciting. Terry Phillips is here again, and uh, Catherine Fuller-Seeley, uh, some great folks. And we just uh, want to come on and talk about Orson a little bit. This week's uh, piece, his, his commentary, uh, he does mention, because of course we're playing him from the same time of year that we're going through, he does mention the War of the Worlds, and uh, that's where I think we're going to spend most of our time, unless folks found other things that they want to talk about in here. Uh, it, it, again, a neat episode where he, I just always am impressed with how much ground the guy can cover in that much time. It's just 15 minutes, and he, and he just shoots through everything. Oh, he does talk fast, but but he talks clearly as he talks fast. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, let's go. John, did you have anything that, that popped out to you or anything you want to say about War of the Worlds uh, is tied into this? Yeah, I, you mentioned that he's so good at like speaking so fast because it, it throws you for a loop when he makes a mistake. In this episode, he makes like a mistake. He says one word wrong and it's just like, that never happens to Orson Welles. He's got it obviously <laughs> all scripted word for word and just like boom, 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 boom. Uh, and one thing that I love about Orson Welles, uh, you know, I, I love like uh, some his radio show, The Black Museum. Yes. Uh, I don't know if you've ever heard it, but he's got that voice, that gravitas. But I love that he calls himself your obedient servant. Yes. And, um, you know, obediently yours. I think that's a neat little uh, sign off. So. And he does yeah, that. That was pretty cool throughout all the different radio shows that he's done over time, which I think is yeah. interesting. You don't have many guys that do that. It can be a comedy show. It can be a serious show. It doesn't really matter. He does it throughout. And then he also does the, this is Orson Welles. And that, that's kind of his sign on that he uses in, in most of his shows. Now, I don't think he uses that right at the beginning. I think at some point he switches over to that, but then he uses that throughout radio and on into television and everything too. Uh, yeah. Kathy, do you have anything that you wanted to point out? Well, I was curious. I was trying to look up this morning. Um, how often, I mean, um, so the War of the Worlds recording in 1938 was live. Yes. Um, and I newspapers of the time people wrote in and said could we hear it again we missed it um and it was not played again at the time but i was curious if anybody knew um was everybody having to go from memory and myth in 1945 and and later when they're thinking about the show uh, does anybody know I'm, I'm just curious as i said i looked on wikipedia that great source and it started talking about other recreations and 50th anniversary kind of things. But just curious if anybody knew. I don't think uh, they, was it I ever put think, out on record? It, was it wasn't, it wasn't, they didn't play the recordings like other years, as far as I know. Uh, certainly that was considered a no-no up until pretty much Bing right. Crosby brought in the fact that you could 
play things delayed right. and things. they just thought it was and, and actually the Orson's piece was part of that it really cemented it in that we can't be playing with people we've got a our news is our news and our other shows are our other shows and everything's live and and we don't we don't we don't mess around with our audience because they they certainly with some pushback on them about about uh, scaring the public with making it sound so real yeah. um, but but I, I then, you know, but if it was not readily available to hear again, to me, that just adds so interestingly to this myth yes. of what the War of the World Scare yeah. broadcast was. Um, well, and in, in, in the books that I've read about it, too, that they say that that is blown so far out of proportion that it wasn't nearly as many people as they like to say that were really panicking and things. It was more like hundreds or thousands of people instead of hundreds of thousands or millions of people or anything like they, they seem to get across. Terry, you got anything about this episode that you want to throw out there? Well, yeah, I want to provide a little context because uh, not all That's of the why names you're here. We and, love your uh, historical events are, <laughs> are going to be familiar to people. Um, early on, he makes reference to General O'Dwyer. Uh, William O'Dwyer was, um, uh, well, he ran for uh, mayor of New York uh, against um, Fiorella LaGuardia and lost. Uh, then he joined the army and, and became eventually a brigadier general in World War II. And then he ran again for mayor of New York and, and won in 1946 and eventually became the American ambassador to Mexico. But the reason I mentioned him in this context is that uh, we, uh, I guess it's no secret, right? That uh, we also do conversations about Jack Benny and right. on, a, on another podcast. Yes. Um, <laughs> I remember an episode where uh, they come where the cast of the Benny show comes to New York and somebody says, Oh really? And another cast member says, no, O'Dwyer. And <laughs> I think it's, it's a conversation between Jack and, uh, and Don. Right. And, and of course, Jack's response is now cut that out. Right. Well, that's the, that is the O'Dwyer. It's uh, general O'Dwyer who there you Orson go. Welles refers to in commentary. And he something also talks about today would not make any sense out of it. It's just one of those things that falls flat. And they're like, I don't know. What right. He's, about. he's become kind of a, kind of an obscure political and, yeah. and uh, historical character. Uh, the other um, name that caught my ear was uh, Getulio Vargas, the dictator of Brazil, who went back and forth between being in power and out of power and uh, who eventually committed suicide while he was in power. But Vargas, as Wells talks about, was, you know, qu quite the uh, narcissist. I don't know if there's anybody in politics today who's like that. But anyway, he was. And yeah. to the point where he uh, uh, persuaded the American government to fund uh, filmmaking about his country. And one of the films that Wells directed, which was never finished, was right. uh, called It's All True from 1941. Yeah. And... It, you know, the, this larger than life character, Orson Welles, was not just an actor, not just a commentator, not just a, a, a filmmaker, but it, it very involved in on the cutting edge of international politics. And so his commentaries on this subject were not just uh, somebody standing on the sideline um, making observations. He was uh, right in the middle of things yeah. when all this was happening. Yeah, yeah that, that's what I found shocking in this episode and really in all the episodes he does not pull any punches no lets you know where yeah. he stands and yeah yeah and in, in upcoming episodes he's going to even do that more they'll have he'll have entire episodes that are strictly politically based 
uh, and so forth. I think it's a really interesting one that, that he's, we're going to have in just a few weeks. I was just listening to it because I was checking out ahead. And uh, it's all about lobbyists. And I thought, interesting how he's complaining about how many lobbyists there are back in the day. And then, and then I would love to find out before we play that episode, I'm going to research and see how many lobbyists we have now versus then. I mean, it's got to be just, you know, a hundred fold more than, than, than back in the day. But interesting, they still have that issue back in 1946 or whatever, 45, 46. But Kathy, you were going to say something. Yeah. And, and to think he's only 30 years old. Yes. Um, and, and I love this business of when I was down in Brazil and I'm going just the other week we had him in China, but indeed good old Wikipedia helps me to say that he was um, made, uh, you know, kind of the forerunner of the CIA had him be among the people, including Rita Hayworth, who were sent as goodwill ambassadors to all over um, Central and Latin America, South America, um, to, to both uh, gather information as well as say, you know, America loves you and, and, and all these things. So um, he, uh, um, uh, Orson Welles was a staunch Democrat. He mm -hmm. adored uh, uh, Roosevelt and he was very pro-Truman, although you can see here in this broadcast, he's going, you know, Harry, you got big shoes to fill, you gotta do this and that. And it's also really impressive how um, forward-facing Orson was about civil rights. Here he's, you know, um, complaining about the poll tax, yeah. and uh, uh, in the South yeah. that kept all, of, you know, ninety-eight percent of African Americans from voting, yeah. and things like uh, uh, that. So he's just, uh, uh, I, I love his fearlessness. Right. I, I love how he wants to, well, you know, uh, tell it like it is, and yeah. you can just see. How late 40s politics is just gonna grind, you know, I mean, shut him down as quickly as possible. So. And I don't think it's important whether viewers always agree with him or don't agree with him or his thoughts, but I think it's interesting that he presents things that we can talk about and say, this is what was going on at the time. And just and just kind of let you know a little bit. I mean, John does that in his podcasts all the time. What's What's happening in the world at the time? What's going on? And I think it's interesting that Orson brings that in. Uh, the last thing I wanted to say about uh, War of the Worlds, though, because I watched, I listened to it again, and it was struck, I get, so many, I get struck by so many different things in listening to that show. But as I was listening to it this time, I was struck by how similar it is to the way we deal with big stories that happen today. If something, if something happens that's, that's a huge story, uh, the Twin Towers, whatever. They, there's a lot of times with pundits talking about it, a lot of times where they bring in scientists and bring in folks that can tell you, uh, flight engineers, whatever, that can give you some insight. And this show, they do the same thing as it's progressing. They're acting like they're interrupting uh, a musical program that's being presented, but they interrupt with with and they and they start bringing in folks that are scientists that can tell them well, what do you think's going on and what do you think this is and and I just thought it was so interesting because I don't even if you listen to like D Day uh, we certainly have lots of of D Day um, footage uh, radio shows that we have where we can listen to like the whole day or something and even then they they were breaking in and giving you updates but I didn't hear so much of the pundits talking about it or bringing in the the specialists to talk about it and things that he did. And so what he did was more like modern news does it today. And, and I just yeah. that was hugely 
interesting that, that they still cover it essentially that same way that he's trying to cover it back then, but on real news instead of fake stuff that he's yeah, doing. Yeah, I think... I think it's interesting in this episode that he calls it the Martian broadcast because yes. that sounds so silly and so like, how, how could anybody be fooled like by that? But when you listen to it, you can see because, it, you know, they take it so seriously. And like you say, they they interrupt programs. I, I Yeah. So it's really an amazing broadcast. John, I wonder if that's a little bit like actors referring to the Scottish play. Ah, uh, Yes. 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 Not well, wanting it, not wanting to name it. <laughs> exactly. And I think I think that is a piece of it because he will forevermore pretty much call it like you're saying, he won't call it by its he won't call it the War of the Worlds, he'll call it the Martian invasion, he'll call it the Martian show, whatever he calls it. But uh, I think it is to play it down. I think it is to try and undercut it um in in lots of ways because I, I think there's lots of negatives that go with it as well as positives. And so uh, he keeps it kind of light. I think the interview we had last week that we that we played between uh, Orson Welles and H.G. Wells, they did a lot of that playing back and forth of trying to to keep it lighter. Where the actual interviewer that was there was trying to go, well, guys, actually, it was taken pretty seriously in things. And they're like, oh, no, it's kind of a Halloween thing. And everybody kind of understood that that's sort of and he's like, not really. <laughs> And so you can hear there's definitely um, uh, what I'm not an argument, but but sort of a uh, not, there's not an agreement as to what really happened. Right. right. Sort of re reframing. Yes. Uh, yes. It. Uh, really? No, no. It's all fictional. Wasn't it great about Mars? Yeah, it was. It was some of the first, I suppose, retconning that we have so often now with the retcon so many things and in, in uh, comic books and in, in movies and, and for John and Star Trek and everything where things get retconned. This was Orson Welles trying in his career to kind of retcon what really happened. Uh, with a retroactive continuity and saying, well, actually, it was a little different than folks are saying. It was actually this. And I don't know. I don't know where it, reality is probably somewhere in between. Anyway, I hope everybody's going to enjoy this episode of uh, our Orson Welles commentaries. We'll keep bringing them to you uh, whenever John can join us. That's wonderful. Um, and it's always great to have Terry and Kathy. Uh, Terry, you do a really good job of digging up some of the stuff that uh, the reality of what was going on in Kathy, you guys all just do a fantastic job. Certainly better than I could do myself. Let me put it that way and my listeners know it. So, so we will let you guys go until next Yes, awesome. Orson Welles speaking. I've got a spy story for you today, a word from Washington and some true confessions about the Martian broadcast. I'll get to that in just a minute. Literally millions of people are waiting to buy a new radio for their homes, waiting to see what the sets to come are going to be like. Of course, everyone knows that some of these sets will be put together by companies who have never made radios before, but who want to cash in on the big demand. Others will be made by old-timers, able to pick up manufacture where they left off in 1942. But as far as we know, no other manufacturer shares the unique position of Lear. Lear has built radios since 1930. The most exacting radios, radios for aircraft. To be acceptable, they had to be the finest radios that could be made. And Lear has become known as the name men fly by. So Lear's experience has been at the top level of radio design and manufacture. Now, Lear is putting Lear foresight and know-how into home radios. Just for example, one of the new things you'll find in Lear radios is the Lear wire that remembers a method of recording on wire that's built right into the set. 
Snap a switch and you make a lifelike record of your children's songs, your own talents, or even a radio program taken right off the air. This record can be a few minutes or more than an hour long. It can be replayed for a lifetime. Yet whatever you don't want to keep can be erased by merely recording something else right over it. There's never been anything like this in home radios before. So before you settle on any radio for your home, be sure to see the one with the nameplate Lear, L-E-A-R. Now Mr. Wells brings you his views and opinions on events as he sees them. The opinions are his own and do not necessarily represent the views of Lear Incorporated. Exclusive from Washington. The state and war departments have just declined to absorb the OSS, the Office of Strategic Services. I guess they figure all those spies are too tough to handle. A high source in Washington told me this morning that an executive order will shortly set up the cloak and dagger outfit as a new independent agency. Here's a story we couldn't tell until now. It's a swell plot for the movies, but you can take it the way I'm giving it to you. Neat. It's perfectly true. Soon after we ended the war, an OSS agent infiltrated into Nazi-controlled France. To keep his the most secret of all missions, he was in contact with only one OSS man in the United States. If he was captured, tortured, he'd then be able to reveal nothing about OSS save the name of his one Washington contact. For a year, he sent out invaluable information, receiving periodic instructions from his Washington contact, but suddenly he received no more secret orders, no more curt receipts. After a time, concluding his mission was over, he slipped out of France at some peril, made his way back to Washington, reported to OSS, but in the wondrous ways of bureaucracy, his one contact had been fired months before. And when the agent from France claimed to be an OSS man, no one knew him or anything about him. He was promptly clapped into jail and suspected of being a Nazi agent. Not until many weeks elapsed was he able to escape shooting as a Nazi spy by tracing down his one-time contact to prove he was really one of the most valuable of our cloak and dagger boys. Well, Russia takes her place this week at the Far Eastern Advisory Commission meetings in the nation's capital. According to unimpeachable State Department sources, it was the Russians who initiated the new discussions which have led to her joining the Japanese talks. I don't think we need any better proof that Joe Stalin wants to get along with us. Word seeping back to the White House has finally begun to penetrate the closed doors and is finally reaching the ears of the tired, worried occupant of that hardback swivel chair, that famous chair in the chief executive's oval study. Inside the now gleaming, freshly painted presidential offices, there's a cold awareness of the fact that if the United States wants war with Russia, it will make that war all by itself. Russia deposits her formal entry into the United Nations with the State Department. At that same moment, the world organization springs to life, the seed carefully nurtured under an older and greater president, planted and tenderly, fairly tenderly cared for on California's jutting San Francisco shale, becomes the world's first faint hope of future peace. The corridors of the State Department and of London's Foreign Office in Whitehall have been buzzing with reports that Russia would bolt the new organization before it was set up. But Russia proves now that she's willing to meet us halfway toward world peace in an organization inside of which she is certain to be badly outvoted. More good news, bad news for the vicious poll tax. Leaders of the anti-poll tax fight are now pretty sure that they're in a position to put the heat on the White House and they think they can force the administration leaders in the Senate to ram the bill through. Harry Truman, who you know has boasted of how well he gets along with the Southern senators, is waking up to the fact that it's high time he won the support of the Negro voters of America. Just now I think his stock with Negro voters isn't worth a penny a share. You can bet the poll tax voters will put the issue squarely up to the president. Be a real test, real test of where he stands. Jennings Perry, publisher of the Nashville Tennessean and head of the National Committee to Combat the Poll Tax, said this week that he saw a great contradiction between America's formal intervention abroad to guarantee a free vote when our own country is a classic example of voteless autocracy in many regions. 
Perry asks what the reaction would be if Bulgaria sent a delegation to the voteless nation's capital and the poll tax paying south to investigate the absence of free elections in the United States. And speaking of elections, two vital ones affecting the ultimate political destiny of our nation take place day after tomorrow, one in New York, the other in Detroit. Should Manhattan's progressive candidate, General O'Dwyer, win by the expected overwhelming margin, substantial hustling to the left and a new love for liberalism will be very evident around the White House. Should the progressive candidate in Detroit come through as well, the political forces which won the last presidential election may be able to press those issues on which their candidates, including Mr. Truman, campaigned. Well, we turn now to the fabulous city of Rio. Beautiful Rio, Rio by the CEO. The news from there this week is that Mr. Getulio Vargas lost his job. It was a big job being president of one of the world's biggest countries. And through the years, my friend Mr. Vargas turned it into a much bigger job by throwing away all the ballot boxes in Brazil and going into business for himself. Goodwill ambassadors, like your obedient servant, were cautioned at the American embassy and elsewhere, not to mention the unpleasant word, but the fact is that Getulio was a dictator. I give him his first name, Getulio, not to parade the intimate terms of our friendship, which I'm not particularly proud, but simply because that's the way he's referred to by some 43 million Brasileiros, very few of whom knew the big boss at all. Getulio it was always. He's a clever one, this Getulio of ours. You heard that the minute you got off the plane. He doesn't say much, your Brazilian friends would tell you, but he doesn't need to. Not that one, not our slick, shrewd little Getulio. He can be silent in 10 languages. Not only that, they told you he could take off his socks without taking off his shoes. Living in Brazil and in different parts of it, as I did, you got the impression that this dictatorship was being sold to the suckers by charm rather than by demagoguery. And if you got to know Getulio, as I did pretty well, this idea was strengthened. From across the room, the man you met looked like a retired candy manufacturer, a happy, chubby little granddaddy whose declining years were given over to charitable works. His defenders would tell you that this wasn't far from the truth that under the sunny despotism of the Decada Getuliana, industrial production was increased by 1485%, that the external debt was reduced, national parks built, highways and airports instituted. You were shown pictures of all these lovely things happening under the benevolent eye of Getulio, and then you got right up close to that eye, the real thing, not a photograph, and caught the glitter, the wily, witty, wicked glitter, the eye of an old crow, as old as sin, nesting on the sphinx. He always had a joke for me. He knew more gossip than you'd think a dictator could have time for. And he loved mentioning by name my latest date. I was a bachelor in Brazil. To prove he knew everything I was up to. And he did. And speaking of pictures of his good deeds, I remember the night we tried to photograph one of the tenement districts in the favelas, that's the hills above Rio, thugs. Thugs surrounded us, and after a siege of beer bottles, empties of course, stones, bricks, and I hate to think what else, we retreated to a more photogenic district, clutching our Technicolor cameras as we went. And if you knew the size of the darn things, you'd grant that's no mean trick. Well, Chetulio's partisans used to remind you that he unified the country, but everywhere in the street cafes, the clubs, the universities, I heard Brazilian people grumbling back at this sotto voce. Oh, yes, they said. Of course, there's no unity so perfect as the unity of slaves, of slaves in a barracoon. The first year or two of the war, that grumbling was still dissipated in those charming jokes. Brazilian especially those jokes, deflating the object of ridicule, but also lowering the pressure of political discontent. The one about Vargas's picture, for example, that joke. There was a law uh, up to last week in Brazil that every place of business must carry on its walls prominently framed the likeness of Getulio. 
According to the story, Mussolini checks in at the pearly gates of heaven, shows his identification, is tossed out for his presumption by the proper cherubim and seraphim. And Hitler appears, same thing happens to him. Finally, Vargas presents himself before St. Peter, who goes to the Almighty and says, you've got to let in Getulio. You've got his picture on your wall. About those jokes, we like to think that satire is a dangerous political weapon in representative government. It is. Under a despotism, it's a safety valve that works the clock around for the despot. Vargas actually hired people to make up those jokes about him. After Brazil ended the war, the people stopped telling jokes. Vargas promised free elections because he had to promise them for right after VE Day. When he began thinking of declaring war on Japan, Brasileiro said it was a ruse to put off the balloting a little longer. A high-ranking Brazilian government official told me at the Conference of Inter-American States in Mexico last spring that the example of American soldiers voting last fall for a president in all the theaters of war, a spectacle beheld by amazed Brazilian GIs, would cost Vargas his power when those Brazilian GIs returned to Brazil. I printed that prediction in my newspaper column, and this week's flash of the bloodless removal of the smiling Iron Man bears it out. I happen to be intimately acquainted with the men behind the coup. They say their purpose is the guarantee of those elections so long delayed, and although the army figures ominously in the picture, I'll tell you that I'm inclined to be very optimistic. There are many real freedoms in Brazil today. Social freedoms no dictator, however sly, could wipe away. I think these next years will discover a truly democratic Brazil, a valuable friend for our cause in Latin America. My guess is that if we move forward into a free world, Brazil will be marching right along beside us. And that, I think, I hope, winds up the story of the cheerful tyrant from the South. This week retired is plain Mr. Vargas. Moral, the most dangerous dictator is the nicest one. Well, a fine bounding case of strep throat kept me from calling on you last week, which was closer to Halloween than this is, but we're still close enough, I hope, to that witching season for me to mark an anniversary for the Mercury Theater. It was on Halloween Eve many a weary year ago that we brought before the listening public the first intelligence of a certain interplanetary invasion. Much has happened since then. There were real invasions. One black Sunday morning in December, I was sitting in the newsroom of a radio station when the word came to us about Pearl Harbor. I remember that for a little while, a lot of people thought I was up to my old tricks. I only wish I had been. Well, to be less gloomy by way of goodbye today, may I please tell you an anecdote or two about the men from Mars. But first, your attention, please, for an interesting announcement. Up to now, only aviators have had Lear radios. They haven't been made for homes before. But now the engineering, the foresight, the meticulous manufacture that Lear knows so well is going into fine home radios and what sets they are. Beautifully designed and made with a master craftsman's touch. Some include television. Some have record players and automatic record changers. Some have FM Worldwide Shortwave and the Lear Wire Recorder I described before. But if you think that radios with all these fine features must cost a lot, just forget it. For these fine Lear radios are right along in price with sets that don't offer nearly so much. There's a good-looking, capable table model at $19.95. And at the other end of the line, there's a beautiful console combination with television, FM, recorder, and everything... It sells for about $500. We'll let you know just when you can hear these radios at your Lear dealer studios. Then you can see for yourself how really fine they are. We know you're going to agree that you get the most value for your investment 
when you buy a radio that carries the name Lear. L-E-A-R. And now a final word from Orson Welles. Well, that notorious Martian broadcast hit a large number of people in a large number of ways. There was, among other things, a strong revival of religious sentiment, I understand, and the churches were well-filled for the whole of that hectic night. My beloved friend, Jack Barrymore, was taken in by his own account when we flashed the word that the men from Mars had taken Princeton and were on their way up Fifth Avenue. Jack went to the kennels at the back of his house, opened the doors, and told a group of bewildered St. Bernard dogs that they had their freedom. Bing Crosby tells a wonderful story about a famous golfer whose name I'd better behold because... I'd better withhold, excuse me, because uh, Bing tells me that he'd looked upon the wine, this golfer had looked upon it when it was red, and before he started listening to the show. That afternoon, it seems he'd done famously at an important match at some links in New England, and with golfer friends, he was driving back to New York with a radio going on in the car. About the time our radio actor, president, appealed from the White House for the people to keep calm, the notable sportsman gave way to honest tears. Just think, he said to his colleagues through his racking sobs, I beat my best score today, and now the world is coming to an end. Nobody will ever know about it. I wish I could tell you more, but it's time to leave you now. Please let me come to call again, and thanks for this time. Till then, speaking for my sponsors, the makers of Lear Radio, I remain, as always, obediently yours. This is the American Broadcasting Company. 10.30 at KECA, Los Angeles.